Last week, Carolyn Ahrens hosted a webinar on prayer and action with Pete Gregg, the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement, and his colleague, Lisa Coons. We decided to pull out some highlights from it and create a little bonus episode for you. I should mention, the Renovar Book Club begins September 21st with Pete's book titled, How to Pray. You can learn more at renovare.org slash book club. Now here's the conversation with Pete and Lisa. Pete, you are uh, credited as the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement. Tell us what it is and how it happened. When people try to use that title, I always want to add the word bewildered founder or (laughs) accidental founder, because uh, if you had come to me, Caroline, and said, I've got this idea, we should pray night and day around the clock forever, I'd have told you you were nuts. I'd have told you it was a bad idea. Um, Yeah, we, long ago, back to uh, 1999, I just became deeply spiritually hungry. Um, An emotion, experience that I'm sure many of the people participating in this webinar will will, will understand. Uh, St. Augustine says, um, that has put salt on our lips that we might thirst for you and I just felt thirsty and I think you know I was pastoring and things were going well outwardly but uh, we had sort of three old ladies and a goat at our church prayer meeting and the goat wasn't committed and uh, my own prayer life was very shallow our public life was was strong our programs were strong and I, I just felt I was dying spiritually and I secretly I was scared of being the guy who at the end of the age will try saying to Jesus, you know, look at all the stuff, look at my resume, and he'll say, we didn't really hang out, we didn't know each other. So part of the psychosis of leaders is we always gather people around us and persuade them that our problems are theirs too. So we launched a night and day prayer room. We stole the idea from the 18th century Moravians, prayed nonstop for 100 years, converted John Wesley and changed the world. And we figured if they could do 100 years, we'd try a month and see what happened. And if we only managed a week, it would still be more praying than we'd ever done before. And um, we, so we were just trying to pray because we were bad at it. And we realized it's the key to everything. If you stop and think, it is the key to everything. Um, One day there'll be no more evangelism to do, no more social justice, no more churches to plant, but there'd better be a conversation between you and God. You know, so um, we began to pray and um, just something extraordinary, something holy happened. And... um, people began to experience the manifest presence of God in incredible ways, so angelic visitations, miracles. I think also I was very moved to see people began to explore the laments and the pain of their hearts in this prayer room that we established. People were doing one-hour shifts through the day and through the night, and we just couldn't stop. Um, Which is crazy because we went a big church and we weren't, we weren't good at prayer. That was the whole point. And then it, as we used to say, went viral and began to spread. People heard about what we were doing and said, we want to do it too. With absolutely no imagination at all, we called what was happening uh, 24-7 prayer. And it just began to spread. And we began to think maybe we could fill the year 20, uh, the first year of the millennium, uh, year 2000, with, with nonstop prayer. And that was 20 years ago. And we've been praying nonstop now for uh, since the 5th of September 1999, we're in over half the nations on earth. 
and all the prayer has given birth to a lot of new ministries. Um, we have a sort of network, a family of uh, monastic communities around the world. Um, many of our guys are right at the forefront of incarnationally, sacramentally engaging with injustice around, around the world. And we're working with everyone from the Catholic Church at the absolute highest levels through to the Salvation Army at street level. So it's been quite a ride. And yet the whole thing's kind of a, an accident. So I find, it, I find it weird that I'm on a, you know, I used to read Richard Foster books and, and um, they've shaped my life. And, you know, I, I'm not someone who ever saw myself as good at prayer. And here I am on a podcast talking about it. So thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Thanks for getting the three people in the goat praying and seeing what that, would happen. That goat, that goat's yeah. still not committed. <laughs> really? No, no, it's terrible. It's, it's I, I don't know. I question the salvation of the goat, to be honest. <laughs> All right. Lisa, can you tell us how you got involved with this uh, movement? Oh, I was uh, pastoring a church plant in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we, uh, we'd we been going at it for about a year. Everything was going really well, and we were ready to push out to that next level of growth. We felt like there was a uniqueness to what we were doing, and because my parents always started every dinner with their starving children in Africa, so eat everything on your plate, <laughs> before I was prepared to commit a huge sum of money to sort of cast vision in the city to let people know we were here, I thought we should get God's okay on that. And in the two weeks that we were praying for God to um, okay the budget and okay what we wanted to do, instead of speaking into that, he spoke in this vision of 24-7 prayer, this idea of creating a sacred space, a prayer room to host the encounter between he and the objects of his passion. He spoke about that prayer birthing mission and justice and that he had a bigger job for us to do that was larger than one church, but rather to serve the city. And so we changed the trajectory of that beautiful little church plant, and it ultimately launched uh, Charlotte 24-7 in 2005. And then at some point, you became the U.S. director. Is that in recent years? I, I did, through what I can only assume was a clerical era. They invited me <laughs> to come on board and, and do this thing, and, and that was a, a couple of years ago, and it's been a wild and terrific ride ever since. Amazing. I love this this uh, duet theme of bewilderment at, uh, <laughs> at the goodness of God and the way he uses us. Just before I start asking you some of these submitted questions, can you talk a little bit, Lectio 365, this this app, which is what, may, not a year old yet, is it? Or is it a... No, we launched it in, we trialed it in December, and then we officially launched it at the beginning of January. Okay. Well, it seems like everywhere I go, I hear p people talking about how helpful they are finding this app. And I noticed a lot of the submitted questions were around personal rhythms and, and uh, you know, finding uh, ways to um, cultivate a life of prayer personally. So can you talk for a minute about how the app came to be and how people can find it? Yeah, Lectio 365 is, is really just trying to give space for people to pray the Bible. You know, not, not just to read it for information and education, but to encounter the Bible for conversation and transformation. 
And many people will know that Lectio Divina is, is, is this ancient approach. The Jesuits are often credited with it, but the Jesuits invented almost nothing. They just popularized what was already out there, and they, they were good at that. You know, the approach is the slow reading of, it doesn't have to be scripture. If you could watch a movie, you could, Thomas Merton says, you know, you start by practicing the lectio on scriptures and gradually you learn how to practice the lectio on all of life so that you can talk to even say a non-Christian friend and be listening to the Lord in them. And so uh, it's, it's a radically different approach. And what that looks like in practice is just 10 minutes a day, you can read it on an app or you can listen to it. We take a, a scripture and we, we, we read it twice, um, which is kind of an offense to the activist in all of us that was like, I've done my Bible reading, now I want to I get on. And it's really framed around lots of space and lots of questions. So it's not someone trying to make worthy points. It's what are you hearing is, you know, you think about this scripture and, and what is the spirit saying to you and what might this mean? And so we launched that. To be honest with you, Caroline, I've done a lot of those Bible in one year things and I think they're brilliant. But I kept my, I caught myself again and again thinking, you know, I've read a whole chapter of Leviticus, and I, if I'm honest, I haven't really taken it in, but, you know, I've, I've, ticked, I've ticked the box. Ticked the box yeah. And something in me wanted to go slow. I thought I'd quite like to maybe just read one book of the Bible or even one chapter. What would happen if I read one verse for a year? So I, I just had this desire to dive deep. And anyway, we, we, we launched a little team of us launched it. And I think that would be reflective of a lot of our journey in 24-7 prayer. Many of us would have started with a view of prayer that was primarily focused around intercession. And I think we felt there's a big red switch. And if we pray hard enough, we'll flick it and this thing called revival will happen. And then, mm. you know, things started to go wrong. Um, and we started to encounter a lot of pain and disappointment, and we had to reframe and recalibrate our theology. I think we also discovered that the charismatic and the contemplative are basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about it, there's almost no difference between them. They're both kind of pre-cognitive, um, trans-rational um, encounters with the love of God. And so, you know, we tend to see charismatic Pentecostal stuff over there and then the contemplative over there. And actually, I really do believe they're not even the opposite ends of the candle. They're probably the same same bit of the candle. And so I think it was fairly natural for us to be drawn into uh, a more contemplative way of praying. And lecture would be would be part of that. And it's just been a wild ride. We We launched it. We didn't spend a lot of money. We're not like particularly clever. We're just trying our best. And I think we have 100,000 daily users now. And, you know, I tell you one of the things that really struck me, two things, was through the coronavirus, you know, the worst of the crisis, palliative care nurses, uh, doctors saying my one moment of peace in the day whilst yeah. fighting COVID in the, war, in the wards is my, is, is my 10 minutes with, with, with the Lord that I, I, I do in that way. And the other thing that struck me is the number of pastors who've been saying for the first time in my life, this is helping me pray with my wife every day. I mean, uh. like if I'd had one or two, I wouldn't, but I've, I've had maybe 30 or 40 personal 
messages saying that. So there's something happening around that. So, um, so yeah, it's been a wild ride with Lectio 365, and 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 um, we'll see where it goes. Lisa did some brilliant content around reconciliation and race, and uh, you know, particularly in in response to the the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, people seem to be appreciating the topical um, sort of fluidity of what we're doing as well. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to those nudges that have been world changing. We're all the beneficiaries of it. And just about all our staff are using Lectio 365 and really loving it. Okay. Let's dive into some of these uh, submitted questions. You've already actually touched on them and poked at them even in this uh, initial conversation. The first bunch of questions are around what we called uh, this this webinar, which is has to do with the relationship between prayer and other forms of action. We wanted to be careful to include prayer uh, in the list of actions uh, that we can take. Which should come first, prayer or action? Mm, chicken or the egg question. Okay. <laughs> Um, I personally like the idea of prayer coming before action, but then I'm the national director of 24-7 prayer. I'm expected to say that. Um, There's this idea that one can, uh, that action can be prayer. There's this idea that you can be acting and praying at the same time. There's this idea that you can be acting and then realizing that the actions, like the story that got 24-7 born, that the actions require prayer in order for them to be extraordinarily fruitful. And so in some ways, there is no wrong answer to that question. But my preference is that prayer would come before all things. Right. There was a lot of questions about when I feel led to act, how do I discern uh, what is just me getting stirred up in my personality and what is what is a lead of the spirit? How, how Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic of how, how prayer might lead to other forms of action and how you would know you were being led? One of the best ways to answer that question is to put a little definition around what prayer is. You know, for a long part of the history of the church, prayer was reaching out to God when you were in a jam, you know, when when it was sort of beyond your ability to fix the situation that was defined as prayer. And the vestiges of that have still remained in terms of prayer being the place where you go to get something from God. But prayer really is meant to be defined in, in broader terms, in, in terms of relationship with God. That's communication and communion. And so when we talk about it, we can't just view it through the lens of obtaining something um, like prayer as a, as a jukebox or a vending machine, uh, that it is relational and moving and it can host silence and groans and spaces where you're not trying to extricate something from the Lord. And so, and so in answer to your question, you know, there's this idea that um, that when you're not sure whether you should act on something because, you know, what if it's just you versus something of the Lord? I think that uh, if you approach it from a heart that's actually turned toward the Lord, a heart that actually wants to do the will of God, then half the battle's already done. You have to remember that God idiot-proofs parts of the journey. 
He, he puts up these bowling rink guardrails so that even if we act in a way that wasn't perfectly in sync with making um, scoring with all 10 pins down, that he can still utilize that because our hearts were right and he can leverage that. So my first response would be to tell people to not angst over fear of getting it wrong. Um, but to pray in all things, to hang out and communicate with God in all things. And as there's an unction to act on something, as far as you know, if it's not contrary to the word and you've talked with a couple of your friends and they don't red light it, then do it and do it with your whole heart. And if it's wrong, it's fixable. God can leverage it. You will have learned something from it. Mm, That's really freeing. I love what, what Lisa said. And I often just ask myself, what's the worst thing that could happen if I get this wrong? Mm. And the truth is that oftentimes, you know, it's very low risk um, and it's worth a risk. Um, You know, if, if, for example, I think God might be telling me to go and knock on my next door neighbor's door and ask them how they're doing and share the gospel with them. Just don't be rude. You know, I'll, I'll go and do it nicely and gently and in a non-preachy way. And it's very low risk. Obviously, if the thing is directional, it affects your future or someone else's, then we have to do discernment in community. And I, I think we don't talk enough about that. Um, we have to listen to other people. And the final question I always ask myself is, is this like Jesus? You know, is this the sort of thing he would say? Is this the sort of thing he would do? And now this is important. Is this the sort of way he would behave? Because sometimes you can do the right stuff, even at the right time, but you can do it in the wrong way. And Jesus is, is, is above all, a, the way of Jesus is a way. It's not a what. Hmm. That's really helpful. I think it's Eugene Peterson who talked about sometimes we do Jesus things, but not in a Jesus way, right? <laughs> you know, and, and in so doing, do more, more harm than help. Uh, there were a lot of questions uh, here in North America. There is, well, and I think around the world, there's this rising awareness long overdue around uh, racial injustice um, and other forms of injustice. You know, sometimes when a tragedy happens, politicians will say, we send our thoughts and prayers. And people will get jaded and cynical about prayer as just sort of a way of spiritualizing a problem and not being called to action. Uh, can you help us with this about the role of prayer in becoming people who fight injustice? I look at it like this sometimes that prayer is that place of prep that it's the it's the best prep especially for people who feel compelled to to act and to work for for uh in spaces of injustice who people who have passion and zeal around that prayer is the best prep for that kind of thing i think it's because it centers our hearts around christ as opposed to centering our hearts around wanting to make a just world There's this idea that the maker of the world um, really knows how to write injustices. And the fact that we are invited to come to him to place before him our zeal and our passion (laughs) and enter into that space of prayer where perhaps we're invited to lament or groan 
or release in prayer what can't be released solely through our activities. It's a, it was Jay Christenstum, I think it said, that the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It's bridled the rage of lions, extinguished wars, appeased elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, rescued cities from destruction and stayed the sun in its course and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. That that place of prayer is the primary is prep place. All? <laughs> yeah. And it's the place where, um, if we are willing to put ourselves there, it's the place where the words that are released and the things that God releases in response are able to do way more than what we can do as we leave that place and partner with God out on the streets in those broken places. And so prayer prepares our heart to hear from God, to be led by God. But the actual prayers that we pray in that space before we go out have the power to do way more than what we do while we're out. Do either of you, does it something come to mind where prayer has turned into that kind of action in your community? I mean, obviously you've founded global movements out of, out of prayer, but particularly as it relates to overcoming injustice, does the story come to mind? One of, one of our lovely stories is an absolute it's a hero in the 24-7 movement from the buckle of the Bible belt from Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, called uh, Kelly. Uh, green and um, Kelly went on a missions trip to Mexico to uh, Reynosa, border town there, and she saw a walled city called Boys Town, which is a center of generational prostitution. You have grandmothers, mothers, and daughters in prostitution owned by pimps, and she was deeply, deeply disturbed and couldn't believe that there are happy little churches you know, quite close to this this walled city that didn't engage with it. They saw it as a place of iniquity that they couldn't do anything about. Hmm. And so she was she was saying to one of the local pastors, I can't believe that you don't engage. And she she's a she's a, a petite, a buffari uh, woman at the time. I guess she was in her early twenties and she began to um she went home to Tulsa and just couldn't get Boys Town off her heart, so she began to pray for it. Dangerous thing to do. <laughs> and um, it became sort of a holy obsession. Eventually, she m- moved down, single woman. I'm not advising anyone to do this, but I'm just telling you what happened. She moved down, um, and uh, she slept in a U-Haul. And she spent a year and a half walking around Boys Town, not knowing anyone inside it, I think two or three times a day, praying for it and praying uh, Isaiah 62 over that place. And, and wondering, her words were, wondering if I'm going crazy. And gradually she began to make friends and had the most extraordinary um, sort of impact and ended up with a center just on the edge of Boys Town where she was rescuing uh, women and, um, you know, she was sharing the gospel. I remember one guy called Kilo because he was a drug dealer as well as a pimp. She shared the gospel with him and he began devouring uh, the gospels and then he, he died. It was probably a gang killing and, you know, at the time, and then and then one of the women who he was a pimp for uh, said, 
oh, in his last days, he didn't stop talking about Jesus. He was always talking about Jesus. And I think about the, you know, the thief on the cross. You know, here is a man who still owns, uh, sorry for language, some women, and, and, and is dealing drugs, and yet was devouring the scriptures and talking incessantly about Jesus. And I can't help hearing the Lord that we love saying, you know, this very day you'll be with me in paradise. And um, eventually Kelly had to get out. She, she got married. Uh, she thought when she moved there, this is it. Uh, you know, I will never get married. No, no man is ever going to be interested in me ever. Uh, I had a beautiful little baby. And then when the gang wars got really bad in Reynosa, there was a particular day she had her little baby Hazel and um, a man with a semi-automatic rifle uh, walked past her door and she just realized this is dangerous. So she had to get out. But that's a pretty strong story of someone where prayer led uh, to action. And I, I want to suggest that's where the church came from. It was people praying night and day. The church got born. And Mother Teresa, when she accepted a Nobel Peace Prize, she said, we are not social workers. We're contemplatives in the heart of the world. And if you, if you think about it, what made Mother Teresa for decades keep caring for the sickest and nameless people who were going to die anyway? That's what she was doing. You might do it for a year or two because you're just a really nice person, but eventually you're going to say, this is a waste of time. Let me go and engage in politics. Let me go and engage in education. Let me try and get to the root of the problem. It's the definition of stupidity. Nameless people are going to die anyway caring for them. The reason she kept doing it for decades was she found Jesus in them. So she was doing it not as an act of justice, but as an act of worship. Mm. And that made her ministry sustainable. I think that's a bit of what she meant when she said, we're contemplatives in the heart of the world. So I don't even buy this notion that you have prayer over here and engagement over there. I think they are so profoundly integrated that uh, it's actually impossible to separate them. If, if, mm. if justice isn't embedded and in integrated in our prayers, they probably aren't really prayers. I believe that story is in your book, Dirty Glory, isn't it? About the yeah, I, I profile three great saints in Dirty Glory, and uh, Kelly is one of them. And um, forgive me, but I think the Chrysostom uh, quote is, is also in there. If people want that, ah, there you go. Great. Um, interesting that she was led to take a considerable risk to go there, and then eventually led. Uh, to leave, which comes up with some questions people were asking about risk taking and prayer. Uh, again, is this is this another area where we need community to know uh, when we should take a risk that might be life threatening? Can you can you say more about discernment around taking risks, particularly at this time? Uh, risks in gathering uh, with COVID. Uh, one one person said, "When you mention risks, do you mean no masks?" I know that's not what I mean when I mention risk. So can you address wisdom and risk uh, taking? Listen, we are not immune from the fall. You know, medical science is real. And I guarantee that if anyone did some research into death rates from COVID-19, you're going to find no difference between Christians and non-Christians because just as gravity, the law of gravity applies to us equally, 
So viruses and crashes on the stock market, these things affect us equally. And um, sometimes we, we've had such a sort of Gnostic, dualistic view uh, of God that separates sort of physical reality from the, the spiritual. We don't understand how deeply we are uh, dust and embedded in a broken universe. And, and we pray for God's kingdom to come, not out of a sense that, well, we're okay, but out of a, a loin with our, within our own dying bodies, Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8, right? Creation is groaning uh, for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. So all that to say, wear a mask, stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the greatest gift God wants to give to most charismatic Christians is common sense. But, but I do passionately believe in risk. Um, you know, Wimber, John Wimber said, you know, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. The, the Bible is a story of, of risk taking. I, I look back on the last 20 years with 24-7 prayer and think, how on earth did we get here? And the truth is there was never a, you know, spreadsheet. There was never a, a plan, really. But we just kept saying yes to God. And my conviction is that the safest thing you can ever do is say yes to the God who knows you best and loves you most. And the most dangerous thing you can ever do, even though it might present itself as the safest, is to say no to the God who knows you best and loves you most. So we, can come, we now come full circle to the question of, well, how do you discern whether it's God or not? But I would urge you, if the Lord is speaking to you, do it. Let's talk about creating communities of prayer, something you guys are, are rather known for. And we got a lot of questions about this. Uh, first of all, kind of how you did it before COVID. Maybe we could talk a bit about that and then what that looks like now uh, during COVID. One, one person asked, what is your opinion or practice regarding rules during corporate prayer time? Which I think is a, a way in of saying, is structure important? Do you have protocols? Do you think that sort of thing is important? Can you help us think about communities of prayer? Well, you are talking to a lifelong introvert. <laughs> so, so my strong, strong suit is personal prayer. But it's true. We, we oversee a lot of communities of prayer and speak into, particularly in church context, um, the birthing and sustainability of corporate prayer. And, you know, the rules, oddly enough, fall in the concept of common sense and don't be boring. Now, I know that sounds bad. <laughs> I know it sounds bad because prayer is not supposed to be that place that's all about you keeping interested. But there really is something to be said for the don't be boring rules. <laughs> and so when when we talk about just in terms of rules of corporate prayer, we, we land on making it the rules that make it as engaging as possible, where you, you don't want to take a bunch of sleepy students and put them in a dark students and put them in a dark room, tell them to bow their heads and expect some profound prayer to come along. There's this idea of integrating visuals and liturgy and creativity and, and uh, taking care to... Uh, to make clear clear themes um, that are communicated in a way that sort of ties what you're praying into um, to who you are and how that affects you and how that affects your world. There's, there really are a million ways to make prayer engaging um, while you're inviting people to engage in prayer. So the don't make it boring rules 
hugely important. You know, something as simple as a music has the ability to uh, stir and focus the soul and cause the soul, the souls of the people praying just to be more focused, more engaged in it. Something as simple as music. And so there's something to that. But in terms of corporate prayer, we, um, we encourage all churches and all communities to just have regular rhythms of time where they're coming together to pray about things that are important for them, personally important in their world. We I like the idea of leaving behind the, uh, the prayer greater that no one gets to grade one another's prayers. No one's vying to pray the most prolific, profound prayers but rather bringing profound and prolific hearts humbly before the Lord to try to grapple with finding the right words uh, that would invite God into the situation, knowing that even if we do it badly, the invitation of our hearts will invite God into the situation. Sometimes it's best in a corporate prayer setting, Pete probably won't recommend this, but to actually take the, make the worst prayer start out, <laughs> because it immediately makes everybody else feel like, well, they could do better than that guy. Well, but this guy said it, then I'm willing to put my anger. <laughs> Bring the worst guy out there. Let him. Now, you realize now anyone who's ever prayed with you is going to be like, wait, she has to go the bar first. first. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway. I know Pete will probably be able to speak into this in a, a, a lot better way than I am, but. But in terms of rules, I really do encourage um, use as much um, resource for engagement as you can. Establish clear-cut themes and don't rush past them. You know, spend some time in a theme. Mm. And what we found to be really helpful is praying together and then silence together, just listening for the Lord's direction in terms of where he might want to take it next what he might want to do with it or how he might reply this this symphony of crescendo of prayers followed by this silence and pin drop and and then a crescendo again i'm gonna toss the toss the ball over to pete now and stop babbling that's great oh lisa you that was a brilliant answer thank you thank you I, i just I'm so glad that there are all these questions about corporate prayer because um, the statistics tragically show that in Canada, in the US and the UK, the church prayer meeting is dying. It's less than half the churches that even have a corporate prayer meeting anymore. And if we're really honest, many church prayer meetings are incredibly boring. And yet we're at a time where our world needs intercessory prayer more than ever. And 1 Timothy 2 says that the first thing we should do when we gather is to pray for those in authority over us that all may go well with us in the lands. Therefore, you get the leaders you pray for. I'll just leave that hanging for a second. So, um, you know, it interests me that uh, I'm a pastor. Preachers can spend days preparing a 30-minute message, and put almost no preparation time into a 45-minute prayer meeting. (sighs) Even worse than that, it's generally not even the senior leader who leads the prayer gatherings. If they even attend, it's outsourced to someone who's sort of vaguely keen in the corner, who may be a wonderful intercessor, but not a leader. It is much easier to train a natural leader to pray than it is to take a natural intercessor and teach them to lead. Mm. And um, look at the Apostle Peter. And so um, 
we, we need to, if, we're, if you're leading corporate prayer, you really do. There are some absolute principles, some clear rules that will help uh, you to have a meaningful, um, non boring, powerful, diverse, uh, worthwhile prayer meeting. And I put a, a number of them in, in both How to Pray and in Dirty Glory. Um, you know, uh, um, and I, I had the privilege of being the director of prayer at a church in London called HTB, where Alpha came from and whatever. And, you know, le- leading prayer meetings at sort of 7 a.m., you, you've just got to be sharp and you've got to inform people's minds, you've got to inform their hearts, and you've got to have a clear model for how we're actually going to do intercession or listening to God. Um, and so I would. I know I haven't answered the question, but I just want to I want to welcome that question. And um, you'll also find resources. We wrote a, we've created a website called prayercourse.org, prayercourse.org. And there's a thing on there called Toolshed, and it, it's got articles about you know how to prayer walk, how, how to lead a non-boring prayer meeting, how to do corporate fasting. There's just there's just a ton of useful stuff in there. It's all free. I have no axe to grind. It's just available. If that would be a blessing to you, please help yourselves. Prayercourse.org and go to the tool shed. That's fantastic. Yeah, our Lisa and I have a mutual friend, Brian Morricon, who works at uh, at Renovari, and he said the first time he went to a 24-7 prayer kind of thing, his church had rented a hotel room and set up these slots for 24 hours a day, and he went, I'm assuming, with a certain amount of dread, like, how am I going to make it through this hour? And And he got there, and there were art supplies and a world map and sticky notes and floor pillows and soft lighting and a boombox with music, and he just couldn't believe what it unleashed and, that, and the creativity. So just just to give people a bit of a tangible vision for the, the no, not boring rules. Well, you said you had two rules, Lisa. Don't was it? Don't be stupid and don't be boring. For those, Actually, I like those. Both of those <laughs> as a template over what Pete said really well. <laughs> so good, thank you both. Um, this is this is I you know uh, here in Canada, and I'm sure you've heard about this as well in the UK, um, Pete. Uh, I hear there's an election coming up, and um, that there are emotions around the, the this election and so a lot of people asked about if you are charged with leading a group of people and your that group of people is not of one mind about where things should go do you have any coaching any help any experience can you tell us a hopeful story about corporate prayer with a group that has some areas of division in all seriousness for those of you in the US my heart breaks and I know many of you will feel the same. I love America. We used to live in America. I thank God for the U.S. and seeing the toxicity, the the, the inability right now, it seems, for people to do anything without it being politicized in a partisan way. And, and even the co-opting of the name of Jesus to one side or the other, it breaks my heart. I want to be absolutely clear that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And whilst um, it's important to vote, it's important to engage politically, vote Jesus. And understand Jesus does not belong to one side or the other. Jesus is Lord of Lords. He's bigger than it all. And there is truth and revelation and righteousness on both sides of, of the fence, Republican and Democrat. 
And that's what makes voting complex. And that's one of the reasons I, I want to suggest that you should also vote for a representative for, for people and not just for policies or not just habitually out of parties and certainly not on some media hype you know, thing. So that's the backdrop. So we, whenever we pray uh, for political leaders, and we will often have our equivalent of Republicans and Democrat Christians in the same room praying together now, um, we would uh, always say this is a place we are going to pray about political leadership. We're going to pray into the election, but it is nonpartisan. And if anyone uses this as a platform for, for a particular partisan agenda, I'm sorry, that, you know, that's, that's not okay. So we really frame it. And, um, you know, many Christian politicians have told me in different countries around the world that some of the nastiest correspondence correspondence they get is from Christians, criticism, attacks. And I think, you know, we, we need to pray for our political leaders. It's a tough job and it's a call. Now, if you, if you say, well, my representative doesn't even believe in God, how much more do you need to pray for him? You know, we, we have to pray for our leaders to have wisdom beyond their human wisdom. If you don't pray for that, how do you expect them to make a decent decision if all they've got is their brain and their set of prejudices, their limited experience? We must pray for our leaders. So I would put clear parameters around it. I would be, uh, I would be very careful to honour both sides uh, in, in the way that you lead the prayer meeting put some decorum in place and make the prayer meeting itself a prophetic statement that we are one in Christ Jesus. Um, and I think that is far more doable than the media thinks it is. The church should be, and can I say must be the place where we show that there's neither Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, male nor female, Republican or Democrat. If the church doesn't demonstrate that, then we are not prophesying about the kingdom come to a divided and broken world. 2 Corinthians 5 says we're called to be agents of reconciliation, for God is reconciling all things together in Christ Jesus. So if you and I are in Christ Jesus, if our church carries his name, we are a place in which extremes are reconciled. So let's 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 develop courtesy, humility, and understand that whilst we hold our convictions strongly, we must hold them with humility. Because you know, I, I'm sure I'm wrong about a number of things that I feel very strongly about. I just don't know which things I feel strongly about are right or wrong. So maybe in relationship with you, Caroline, it's in relationship with Lisa. I can begin to understand righteousness and truth and good stewardship of the earth's resources. But on my own, I absolutely will be a victim of my own background and my own prejudices. And that's where voting in this election does link to conversations like the, the conversation around race uh, and, and um, foreign aid and so on. Good word. When praying into volatile, um, tenuous, um, already divisive um, landscapes such as politics and race, et cetera. You know, those are actually the best places to pray uh, sweeping prayers. You know, mm-hmm. when Jesus, when Jesus was asked to teach teach his boys how to pray, um, he offered them that which would um, be sweeping, but would certainly be clear in inviting God's will and God's involvement and God's covering and God's resources into it. 
that it's this idea that we set down the particulars of um, whether we think we're right or not, which particular party we hold to, which particular view we hold on an issue, and that we set those down in subjugation to come together in unity to pray this sweeping prayer of, Lord, Whatever your will is, we're asking for that to be done in this situation. My conviction is that I'm right about this. And if it were up to me, I would pray that you would help everybody else in the room be clear about my rightness about this so that my political party or my particular stance is uh, is voted in and given prominence. But in, in this idea of praying together corporately with diverse views, we're all invited to sort of come up from above that and take the aerial view and pray the sweeping prayers that mm-hmm. that God's reply will determine what God's will is, not mm-hmm. us taking what we think his will is and speaking that into and calling it prayer. So good. Sweeping prayers. And he actually gave us one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Very, very helpful of him. Quite a few tender questions came in about personal prayer or corporate prayer, but especially personal prayer in difficult situations. And let me just give you a little sampling of them and then maybe you can speak to them as a whole. One person said, how do I pray as I care for my husband who has dementia? Another person said, how do I pray as I go through a difficult marriage? Another person said, how can I pray when I can only mourn and weep? And then several people said, how do I pray when it just feels like my, my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? So, um, can you help us? What What do we do when when we're suffering and it doesn't feel like we're getting through? Some of you will know my story that one one year into the twenty four seven prayer movement taking off, and probably you know deep down we I think we sort of felt our prayers could save the world. My wife got incredibly sick. Very, our, our second child was seven weeks old. She got a brain tumor, a very large one size of an orange in her skull and um, nearly died many times. They got it out. We still have to have regular MRI scans to see whether it's growing back, which continually renews the trauma. And the valley of the shadow of death for her is certainly Psalm 23's, you know, MRI scanner. Um, But she um, now struggles with epilepsy and uh, has had very uncontrollable, very dangerous seizures for for many years. And so we've had decades of this weird life where we are accidental leaders of a global prayer movement seeing amazing miracles, miracles that will curl your hair, you know, just, uh, I mean, Dirty Glory is just full of miracle stories. Uh, And yet at the same time, uh, living with the reality of profound pain and disappointment and often thinking I don't know if my prayers can even save my own wife as I watch her slip into seizure after seizure and pray for it to stop and it doesn't work and so then eventually you just stop praying because it's hard enough dealing with the kids and the hospital and everything else without having a crisis of faith you know I I realized you you have to learn pretty fast in life and certainly as a follower of Jesus to live with paradox because I I was tempted to either become very hurt and cynical and and just kind of quit, you know, and just say, well, I'm broken. You know, I, I was trying to do this radical thing for God. 
I pretty much nearly lost my wife. I'm, I feel like a solo dad. We've got no money. I, you know, none of it's true. Or I was also equally aware of a temptation to become very superficial and basically come on things like this and pretend that everything was fine and that we were great when actually we were hurting like hell. And so what you have to do is learn to live with, with paradox. And I'm so reassured that the Bible is more honest about unanswered prayer than the church is. It is extraordinary what was not redacted from the text and that the word Israel means the struggle. You know, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. And so to the person talking about mourning and weeping, please know that that is prayer. That is bringing your broken heart before the Lord and bringing his presence into the mess. Isn't it interesting? We always ask God to airlift us out of the problem that we pray for miracles. Of course we do. Make it go away. It's what Jesus did in Gethsemane, you know, take this cup from me. And sometimes he does miracles, but more often he parachutes in and joins us in the middle of the pain. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for thou art with me. And so I think uniquely in Christianity, we have a God who comes and is crucified with us, weeps with us and walks with us through the valley of the shadow. Um, so please know that your lamentation, your mourning is a form of of, of, of prayer. And, um, you know, there's a number of thoughts, I think, for the lady with the, the husband with dementia. You're walking a long, long path. Um, you will need your friends. You will need one or two people with whom you can be really honest and really safe. We often found that whilst we couldn't find hope for the long term or the big picture, we could find God in the diamonds in the dirt. You know, we could find God in the details of the day. I could thank God for a good cup of coffee or the fact that we got a Christian nurse allocated to us or that someone sent me an encouraging text message just when I was feeling like giving up. And so learn to live in the present, uh, learn to celebrate the small Lean into your friends. Understand the legitimacy of questions and of mess in your relationship with God. And remember, you know, the twinkle in Jesus' eye when he tells that beautiful parable about the Pharisee at the temple who prays all the right prayers and the tax collector who can hardly get any words out and just says, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus catches the eye of a Pharisee and says, hey, um, who do you think went home heard by God? Mm. You know, he hears you and he, he is with you. And we must, in our communities and our churches, create cultures in which it's okay to be a mess. It's okay to have unresolved questions. I wrote a book called God on Mute about wrestling with unanswered prayer. And it traces Jesus' journey through the four great questions. Maundy Thursday, he asks the, the how question, how am I going to get through this? We're told he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's the first thing that happens when you get a diagnosis, you hit a crisis, you suddenly lose your job. It's just, how am I going to get through this? God help me. Then the Good Friday question is the why question. Why is this happening? Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther said that at the moment, that moment, Christ became the atheist. <laughs> so, so, so there's the theodicy question. And then 
Holy Saturday is the one that really interests me most. That is where, where are you, God, when you are dead in the grave? Where is God when God is silent? And as the church, we ignore Holy Saturday. We leapfrog from the cross to the resurrection without remembering that God allowed all of creation to live in chaos without answers for 24 hours. Mm. There were no answers. So there's a place for just saying my life is chaos and it is not yet resolved. I do believe that Easter will come one day. Mm. And it seems to me that most Christians live Holy Saturday lives somewhere between dear God and amen somewhere between the cross. We can't deny what Jesus has done for us in the past, but we sure as anything know he hasn't done what we need him to do. And so that is the place of paradox. And then finally, you have the when, when, when God breaks in. And that is why, as Christians, we lament and we groan, Romans 8, not from a place of despair, but from a place of hope. Romans 8 says that our, our groaning and the groaning of heaven is is labor pains. And so our conviction is that this pain we are experiencing is not unto death, but is ultimately unto the renewal of all things. It is unto life. It is unto the day when there will be no more dementia, unto the day where there'll be shalom and marriages won't break down and covenants will work out. Um, but, but we are living in Holy Saturday. So, um, that, that, that's got the God on mute, and we're just re-releasing it uh, in, in North America on the 21st of September, and the Archbishop of Canterbury has kindly written a, a foreword for it. So uh, that's available if people are really struggling with those questions. Sorry, it's a long answer, but it's a okay. really deep and big question, and I empathize profoundly. Thank you. Someone says, can you speak to listening prayer? and various ways it can be done. And in discerning and presenting a question to the Lord, what do you listen for in receiving his response? Are you looking for images, specific words, verses? And then perhaps touching on what we just said, what does it mean if the questions are met with silence? So any anything you can say into, you know, most of us are aware we still probably do more talking and listening than listening in our prayer lives and that there's more listening to be done. Can, can you help us with that? My first counsel is just to, uh, to one, do silence and stillness as a practice. Two, when you're in that listening space, come to it from a place of rest. Don't come clutching and grabbing and angsty around needing to hear from God, but just, you know, rest. Um, and then the third one is pay attention to the language that you're already used to hearing from the Lord, whether it's a small, still voice or a scripture that comes up, you need to grab your Bible and go hunt it down. You can trust the language that you've already known. And then the second bit is really cool is that you got a chance to try it out on your friends, the people in your life that you trust, that you know, hear from God. You get a chance to pass it off to them and say, hey, what do you think? Even if they may not follow the trajectory of it, it's still something beautiful in submitting what you're hearing or what you're thinking to the community around you um, so that a fuller and a wider expression of God's voice can come into you. So great. Anything you want to add to that, Pete? Keep it simple. (laughs) Dare I say, start with the Bible. (laughs) Seems to me every page of the Bible is a conversation starter. And as we learn to pray the Bible, even if sometimes it's, I don't understand this bit, help me. 
Mm. Um, so, so, and, and of course, it's primarily through the Bible that we um, find a grid for all the other um, more subjective ways in which God speaks. And then I, I echo Lisa that learn to listen to the Lord in your in your own language. And you know, for some, it is dreams and visions. It's highly mystical. For some, you'll be very good at hearing the Lord and other people. I love, you know, Colossians one verse twenty-seven: Christ in you is the hope of glory. Sometimes, I, I can I can perceive glory in others in a way that I can't in a worship time. But learn to listen and then understand that God is always speaking, but He's not always saying. He's always mm-hmm. speaking, but not always saying. So I, I believe, you know. There's always revelation from God. I mean, obviously there is in Scripture, and there are timeless truths, but he's not always saying stuff. If in my relationship with my wife I, I, I was continually talking at her and telling her stuff, that wouldn't be a good relationship. That would be a bad relationship. So learn that it's okay to listen to the silence of God and not be able to say at the end, he said this, <laughs> but that you were still listening to him. He's always speaking, but not always saying. Mm. Um, and and then the, the final little thought, and I, I just wonder if this is for a particular person who's listening to this right now. I've noticed in the Bible and in my own experience that in different seasons of my life, God speaks to me in different ways. And sometimes when I transition into a new season, I think God stops speaking to me, but it's actually because he stopped speaking to me in the way that had become familiar to me. And he's wanting to draw me into a new style of conversation. And he's inviting me to learn some new ways of listening. And so, um, and God does speak more at times of transition. Um, You know, it's interesting that Samuel, when he hears the voice of God, it's preempted with, you know, the word of the Lord was rare. And and there are times in all of our lives God speaks much, much more uh, clearly and frequently uh, and, as, as it were, objectively. And there are other times when it's, um, it's much more a time of trust and communion, but um, it's less verbal communication. And uh, so those are just a few simple thoughts. But I just wonder if there's someone here who feels God's gone silent. But actually what's happened is you've moved into a new season and he's inviting you to hear him in some new ways. That was Carolyn Ahrens talking with Pete Gregg and Lisa Coons from 24-7 Prayer. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode. And we'll be back with a new episode on Monday. Talk to you then.